Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Richard Carswell. Dr. Carswell is an independent scholar who has a doctorate in history from the University of Reading. His area of specialization is mid-20th century French and British history, and today we are discussing his book, The Fall of France and the Second World War published by Paul Grave. Welcome, Dr. Carswell. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, Dr. Carswell, what is the thesis of your book? The thesis of my book is that when France fell in 1940, the immediate reaction of most people was that this was such a tremendously significant and unexpected event and of such a huge magnitude that there must have been a very, very important and significant reason for such a a, a defeat. And that manifested itself then and for a long time afterwards in, if you like, three forms. One, if you like it, the most basic was, for some, France's defeat was divine punishment uh, for the sins that the French people had supposedly committed, particularly during the interwar period of the Third Republic. Um, They had abandoned God and they had uh, concentrated on merrymaking and self-indulgence and individualism and so on. Uh, The second explanation was that there had been a conspiracy of some sort uh, to bring down France in 1940, either generals who had connived with right-wing politicians or from the other side, Uh, communists uh, who had um, destroyed uh, armaments in factories during the phony war and then during the actual fighting had uh, spread a defeatist uh, message to uh, reduce the resistance of the French army. And then the third, and this became, if you like, the most all-embracing explanation was that at its simplest, France was decadent and had been decadent for a long, long time, particularly in the interwar period, and that as a result, uh, France had become rotten. Uh, France uh, was bound to fall. And for some, it was even a good thing that France fell. So those three explanations, but particularly the third one of decadence, was were, were the ones that held sway for many, many decades from 1940 onwards. But from about 
the 1970s and the 1980s, historians, particularly from, if I can put it like this, the, uh, the Anglo-American historians, and by that I mean United States historians, Canadian historians, and to some extent British historians, but particularly North American uh, uh, historians, began to look at the matter again and concentrated on what had actually happened during the Battle of France, those six weeks from May the 10th um, until uh, mid-June when the fighting took place. And they came to the conclusion that there were many, many contingent factors involved in the Battle of France um, that went some way to explaining why it was that the Germans won and the, and the French um, lost. And I, my book basically says that that uh, academic consensus, which emerged over 40 years and has been growing ever since, is now as far as um, people who have studied the subject are concerned, uh, is the view that generally speaking is now to be found in the serious history books, namely that, yes, there were uh, background factors, but the defeat of France in 1940 was essentially a military defeat. And of course, let's not forget, and this is an important point, without the military defeat, there would have been no Vichy regime. So in essence, that is what you mean by the diagnostic grid. Exactly, exactly that, yes. Um, let me just preface my response to that by mentioning one factor which I didn't make explicit in my book, but which I think is is very important, and that is this. Perhaps the most difficult thing for historians to grapple with when they're writing about whichever subject it is uh, and whichever period it is, is the factor of causation. Why do things happen? Why did things happen as they did? Why did one cause produce another related cause, which relate, which then went on to, to the outcome and the consequence? And that's difficult. And so with that in mind, and don't forget my, the opening sentence of my book is, why did France fall? in 1940, and why did it fall so quickly in a matter of uh, six weeks, as I say? And so my book really is an attempt to see how historians have tried to answer that question. And you have to have some sort of, if you like, framework in order to approach that um, that, that, that question, and, and I borrowed, and I openly say so in my book, I borrowed the grid uh, from two historians, um, and the grid basically consists of four parts. Um, on the one hand, if you like, at one extreme, there is the decadence thesis, which I've already mentioned, which in effect said that, you know, France was so decadent, as I say, that it was bound to fall. And at the other extreme is the contingent factor, where if you want to take the argument to, a, to, 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 a, to another level, you could say, well, if, for example, the French, if, for example, Rommel and his panzers had not managed to cross the Meuse River 
uh, in May 1940, and the French managed to hold on uh, to the bridgeheads, and the Germans were kept to the other side of the Meuse River, then, you know, the outcome of the battle would have been completely different. Um, and, and therefore, if, for example, the Allied air forces had managed to stop Ronald from crossing the, the, the river, um, the, the um, who knows what would have happened to the Second World War. But some people, of course, are not very happy with that um, approach in the sense that they don't believe that everything happens at a superficial level. There must be deeper causes. And that's where the other two parts of the fourfold grill, grid, if you like, come in, namely constraint and failure. Uh, and and my book looks at all four of those um, aspects of, of the grid. In the book, you briefly discuss the teleological aspects of the writing of history. Uh, do you view history as an objective or an, a subjective exercise? <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent question. And... Um, um, maybe we, we, we need to schedule another uh, another session because it's a very difficult question, isn't it? And I think the short answer is that I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, I think all, all serious historians or most serious historians uh, are looking for an objective truth. Uh, but at the same time, we are all human beings. We have our points of view. Uh, we approach a subject with a particular point of view for whatever reason. And the good historian um, approaches the subject with an idea in mind as to what the explanation of a particular historical problem is, and then looks at the evidence as much as possible to see whether or not the evidence confirms his or her view or whether there is evidence which contradicts it. There's a very good book um, by Professor Richard Evans, uh, who is, of course, well known for his trilogy on the history of Nazi Germany. But before that, he wrote a very, very good book called In Defense of History, which was essentially a discussion of historiography. What is history? How do you approach it? How do you write it? What sources do you use, etc.? And I'm really repeating what he said in that book, and that is that historians um, try as much as possible to uh, achieve some sort of objectivity, but are aware that they have their own subjective approaches as well. And it's a question of trying to trying to to, to remove the inevitable biases that all historians have and achieve something a little bit more objective. What did so I think in the case of the fall of France, um, and you use the word teleological, um, th th that is a good example, I think, of, again, a point that I make in my book, of how some historians approach the writing of history, and in particular, the, the fall of France. Julian Jackson, whom you know, of course, and who you've interviewed um, regarding his marvellous biography, biography of Charles de Gaulle, 
his book on the fall of France uh, is a very comprehensive approach, which looks at both the contingent factors and the deeper causes, which I would classify as constraints and failures. Um, but there are a lot of historians who basically narrate the story. They say that, you know, on the 10th of May, Paul Renault received a telephone call to say that uh, the German attack had started. And then they go on day by day, hour by hour, and they narrate the the events uh, of the of the whole story um, and then come to an end. And they don't really say, well, actually, the fall of France happened because of X, Y and Z. They just tell you the story and leave it to you to decide what the causes of the fall of France were. Um, or there are other historians um, who, for example, will say that, you know, France was decadent and then tell you the story of the Battle of France and leave you to draw the conclusion, although they haven't said so explicitly themselves, that the fall of France occurred because France was decadent. So, um, so I think the harder the problem in history uh, to, 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 to solve, um, the more difficult it is, therefore, to establish the exact chain of causation. And I think that that is particularly the case in the fall of France. What were the feelings in France, especially among the French elite, when war was declared? Why did the chamber and the Senate not vote on going to war? And if it had been able to do so, would it have voted in favor? One gets the impression when one reads literature that there was a different feeling in Paris at this particular junction than, say, in London, where, as you probably know, Chamberlain's government was also um, almost pulled down because the the House had the mistaken idea when he uh, rose to make his statement and he did not announce that war had been declared, that there was going to be, as they, I think, contemporaries put it, another Munich, which, of course, was not the yes. case. It was just a question yeah. of synchronizing the French and the British declaration of war. But I think that that um, story illustrates the fact there seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, a different feeling prevalent among the political elite and maybe the financial and uh, social elite in Paris than in London at that particular time about the need and uh, the willingness to go to war. I think there's a, a, a lot of truth in that. Um, and and you, your your example uh, of Chamberlain in the House of Commons is 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 a is a, is a very good one uh, because it all then changed within 24 hours and and Britain declared war and and then was followed five hours later by France. But um, another way of putting this, uh, and I, I'm I'm agreeing with you, another way of putting this is that. When the question of war credits was uh, discussed in the French Parliament um, and the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Edouard Daladier, asked for war credits in order to be able to spend on, on the war, um, and a lot of historians point this out, he never actually used the word war, or at least if he did, he used it very, very sparingly and was really talking about a situation without actually 
saying, I now want you to vote in favor of, of, of a declaration of war. So the war, the, the vote was on credit, war credits or money. And um, that was, if you like, a proxy um, for the actual truth, the reality, which was that France was about to declare war on Germany. So to that extent, I think it's true that there was less of a, of a welcome to go to war uh, in France than there might have been in Britain within the elite, as you rightly point out, within the elite. On the other hand, I think it's worth pointing out that within days of the declaration and even before the declaration of war, um, millions of Frenchmen were mobilized and transported to the front. And that all worked pretty quickly and pretty well. And there were very few deserters and there was certainly no rebellion on the part of any of the French soldiers who were called up and sent to the front. And indeed, in some respects, it was too successful, um, the mobilization, because after a, a while, after a few weeks and a few months, it was recognized that too many men, men had been mobilized uh, and that that people, workers who were necessary in factories and in, on the farms and so on, uh, were not present because they'd been sent to the front. And at the same time, of course, no fighting was taking place on the on, on the Western Front and wouldn't be wouldn't take place for another nine months or so. So I think on the one hand, the elite were nervous, certainly. Um, and to that extent, perhaps more nervous than the British elite were. And of course, things got worse as the fall, by that I mean the autumn of 1939 uh, progressed, because by the end of September, Poland had been um, conquered by the Germans and of course invaded in the East by the Soviet Union as a result of the uh, Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939. And uh, people started to ask the question in France, well, uh, Poland is lost. Uh, what is the point of continuing the war? And that period of questioning in the late, in the very end of 1939, then turned into the winter of 1939-40. And it turned out to be one of the coldest winters on record. And for the soldiers at the front, life was extremely difficult. And for even people behind the lines and families and so on, life became very difficult, partly because of the weather, partly because uh, there were shortages of food and fuel and so on. And so life was very difficult for the French in the main during the phony war. And that added to the question as to, well, why are we continuing to fight this war? But let's not forget that in Britain, too, in the autumn of 1939 and into 1940, uh, there were people among the elite, including some of the uh, some of the most distinguished aristocrats in the country who were asking the question, well, what's the point of continuing this war now that France, now that Poland had been conquered? And uh, they exerted a lot of pressure on Chamberlain and Halifax 
uh, to try and find a compromise with Germany. Uh, there was a statistic which I came across in researching uh, for this podcast, which I like to convey to you, um, which is that, as you mentioned correctly, French casualties in the period from the 10th of May to the armistice was approximately 60,000 killed. Now, if one uh, goes back a little bit, uh, the figure that I found was for the first, for the eight, seven to eight days of the first Battle of the Marne in September 1914, there was 75,000 French killed, French soldiers killed. Um, how does one explain the this low number of killed by the um, suffered by the French army in May and June 1940, and doesn't that, to some extent, I know this is a little bit of a military question, military question for a military historian, which you're not, neither am I for that matter, um, but does not that illustrate a aspect of the French military performance, which was that it appears that the uh, average soldier was not as enthusiastic, for lack of a better expression, to die in the trenches if he could uh, avoid it. I believe in the the book you mentioned that uh, prior to um, Pétain's asking for an armistice, there was approximately 800 or 900,000 French soldiers who had already surrendered. The other the other half surrendering after Pétain's um, appeal to uh, the Germans. Uh, does not again that does not from your um, perspective illustrate the fact that the French regular French soldier was not in the same spirit as uh, in the case of 1914 or for that matter in the spring of 1918. Uh, it's a very good question. Um, let me just preface that by saying that the figure of 60,000, which you quote me as quoting. Uh, which is now, I think, the generally accepted uh, f- figure, uh, and is 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 the figure that I found in a in, in an official publication by the Ministry of Defence, uh, the French Ministry of Defence, uh, about the Second World War, um, which was published only about ten years ago. Whereas prior to that, and even today, in in some history books, the figure that was that is generally uh, mentioned is 100,000 uh, French killed. Um, my advice to anyone who, who's reading a book about the fall of France and sees that figure needs to question it because I think the figure of 60,000 is more likely because it has more of a um, an official stamp to it uh, and is based perhaps on more rigorous research. So I'm agreeing with you in a sense because uh, 60,000 uh, seems to be the figure which is even even fewer of course uh, which is part of the argument that you're that you're raising my my initial feeling is the difference between that figure and the figures for the first world war relate to technology I'm not a military historian, as you say, but the nature of the battle in 1940 was quite different from that of 1914. Um, So the first big 
battle where French and Germans came face to face, so to speak, was the various battles around the Meuse at the time the Germans uh, were crossing the river, which was very early on in the in 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 the in the in the campaign, as you know, around about the 14th, 15th, 16th of of May, and essentially what was happening was that the French were being bombed by Stuka dive bombers and it was a very frightening experience for them. But actually the amount of damage that the Stuka bombers did in terms of killing uh, French soldiers was actually quite low. In other words, um, the terror on hearing that siren and listening to bombs exploding uh, suggested that many, many more people were being killed than was actually the case. And then once the Germans had crossed the River Meuse and headed for the coast um, and ended up, of course, at Dunkirk um, by the beginning of, of June, that that movement was a movement of tanks followed by infantry uh, transported quite often, but not always, of course, by uh, trucks. And so there wasn't actually that much killing to be done, if I can put it like that, on the part of the Germans, because they were so fast in their dash for the Channel Coast after they'd broken through um, the Meuse sector, that actually there was very little fighting. Um, of course, once Dunkirk had been evacuated, and of course some casualties took place uh, at Dunkirk, they then turned south, uh, and the second half of the Battle of France began um, um, on the Somme and the Aisne rivers, and there there was some fighting, and that caused more French casualties. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Um, it, in 1940, the nature of the fighting was so much more mobile that it was unlikely that uh, there would be high casualty rates. So I don't think it's a question of um, the French not wishing to fight as much as they had won wanted as they had fought in 1914, although that was a very, very common argument and, and is an argument which is held, uh, which is even heard today. But I genuinely believe that the main reason why there were so few casualties was because this was blitzkrieg, uh, a war of movement, and um, that precluded from masses and masses and masses of soldiers being killed. Um, and there's one, uh, there's one little uh, anecdote in my book, which I quote from a memoir by a Frenchman called Jacques Benoit Méchin, uh, who was a soldier in 1940 and was captured by the Germans. Uh, and during his captivity, uh, he was talking to German soldiers who were his captors and his guards and talking about what had happened and 
why the French had lost. And one of the Germans says, well, there was nothing you could do about it because, you know, this was, these were our machines, meaning our tanks and our planes. And they were so effective and so fast that whatever you did, you, you wouldn't have been able to stop them. So this was really a, a war of machines rather than a war of men. Whereas, of course, in 1914, that was definitely not the case. As to the surrenders of large numbers of troops, um, there were uh, large surrenders, that's true. But again, as I think I point out in the book, and as historians now generally acknowledge, a lot of those surrenders took place from the moment that Pétain made his speech on radio on, on June 17th, saying um, that they had to that the fighting had to stop because he was going to ask uh, the Germans for an armistice. Um, in other words, um, he was jumping the gun slightly. He was saying, in effect, you know, stop fighting because I'm I'm going to ask the Germans for an armistice. Whereas what he should have said is, I'm going to ask the Germans for an armistice. And then in the event of an armistice being agreed, then, of course, the fighting will stop. But it's at that point that a lot of um, French uh, troops then surrendered. That is true. I suppose the the example of uh, Russia 1941 backs up your argument. Usually the Russian example is one which is held in terms of uh, willingness to die by uh, Russian soldiers to be uh, much greater than uh, France in 1940. But in the five months, uh, the first five months of the Operation Barbarossa, the German operations in the uh, Soviet Union, uh, I believe that the figures of surrender uh, by Russian soldiers were anywhere from four to five million. So really? Yes. Oh. And again, I think your point about the technology being different and uh, in terms of, in essence, a war of maneuver had returned as opposed to the sort of static front type of fighting of the Great War. And that in itself uh, gave greater vent to uh, opportunities to for the, for the one who, the power who had the greater advantage in terms of uh, maneuverability in the case of 1940, the Germans. Uh, they did not have to uh, heal as many Frenchmen or, for that matter, members of the BEF to gain their advantage. Exactly so. And um, um, that, of course, is one of the reasons why the shock of the defeat was so profound, and not only in France, but around the world. Let's not forget, and I, I should say that when I... When I started to think about writing a book about France in 1940, my original thought was that I wanted to see how it was viewed uh, around the world by, by, by enemies, allies, neutrals, um, generally. And the, 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 the main experience, of course, of everybody in 1940 was, as I say, profound shock. All the more so because it was a surprise, because everybody or most people, most people um, thought that 
there would be another Western front as in the First World War. And this would be a war in which um, it would be difficult to make a breakthrough on either side. It was would be a war of three to four years. And that's what the Allies, uh, military commanders and politicians uh, thought right from the start after from, from September 1939 onwards, uh, that they would not attempt an invasion of Germany because they didn't have the resources and the, and the, and the, and the, and the forces and the armaments to do so, that they would have to uh, develop those uh, for during a period of two to three to four years and then attempt um, an invasion of Germany and um, in the meantime, they would just hold the Western Front as statically as possible. And if the Germans attacked, that they would defend it as they had done in 1914 and that we would be in for a period of, um, of, of trench warfare of some sort. So when the Germans um, broke through and the whole thing was over in, in six weeks, as I say, part of the reason for the profound shock was this element of surprise. Nobody expected uh, the German attack to be over so quickly, including uh, Hitler himself, of course. What do you make of the fact that uh, by the 18th of May, uh, Maurice Gamelin was already suggesting uh, to uh, Paul Renaud, the uh, prime minister, uh, that... Uh, France should uh, ask for a uh, ceasefire. And why does that compare so drastically with the French high command's, um, uh, I suppose, enthusiasm or um, die-hardiness in the September 1914 in the Great War? Um. I can't really say much about 1914 because I don't really know that period very much. But I think the reason why things started to, um, why, why those discussions in, in 1940 took place so early and um, it, it is because of the element of surprise. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me just preface that by saying that it's it's not entirely clear when and who brought up the subject of a possible armistice. In other words, <clears throat> there were an inevitably uh, in that period lots and lots of informal conversations that went on within government and between government and high command and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> so I can't be absolutely sure as to when the subject, even informally, was was was, was first uh, broached. But of course, certainly it was uh, put forward formally by Gamelin's successor, Vegan, uh, who raised it several times with Renault, and um, and of course what Reno's first reply was that the uh, army should capitulate as the Dutch army had done without uh, 
committing the government. And his thought, of course, was that the government would then <clears throat> go abroad if the battle was lost on French soil to continue the war either from North Africa or possibly from uh, from 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 London. Um, but as I say, I think that it's your general point is true that the military commanders uh, were very quick in 1940 to raise the possibility of an armistice. And I think the reason for that is because they were just overwhelmed by the speed of the German advance. Um, it, there's, there's a, there's, there are various people who've made the analogy, and I think it's a very good analogy, that France in 1940 was knocked out um, like a boxer who is uh, punched to the ground and is momentarily stunned, and he doesn't have the time to get up on his feet before the, uh, his opponent uh, deals another blow, which is the fatal blow. And I think that's what happened in, 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 in France in 1940. The German advance was so fast, so surprising, so um, disconcerting that I think the high command began to panic and, um, and thought that the only way out was an armistice. So, again... Um, I, I don't think 1914 and 1940 are, are directly comparable in that sense. How novel was the treason narrative as the um, uh, agency for the French defeat in 1940? Wasn't there in the Great War, I'm thinking in very late 1917, early 1918, a um, treason narrative spun by Clemenceau, um, that um, certain people in high places were, in fact, colluding with the Germans. Um, so, in essence, my question is, how novel is this was this particular narrative uh, for the reason for French defeat, and did it not actually have a long prehistory? I think you're right. I think it does have a prehistory, and I, I think it's true um, in, in history generally. Um, I think in times of conflict, there are always uh, people um, who will look for a conspiracy because, again, I think the fall of France illustrates this. People were so bewildered, so uh, shocked, so confused by what was happening and by the speed with which things were happening uh, that they looked for easy answers. Um, and one easy answer, of course, is conspiracy. And I think that's just a, an, a feature of human nature. Uh, when things are too difficult to understand, you try to look for the simplest uh, answer to, to the problem. And, um, you know, what is conspiracy? Conspiracy is, in a way, two things, I think. it's On the one hand, it's a subconscious acknowledgement that there are things in this world that you cannot understand because the world is a very complicated place and that therefore there are stronger powers at work. And conspiracy is, is in effect saying that there are people who, are, who have power to control, which, which you, uh, the victim of, of, of circumstances, uh, does not have. 
Uh, and the other thing is that, of course, conspiracy or the accusations of conspiracy are a form of scapegoatism, aren't they? They're saying, well, this is not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. And I think that happened in 1940, and I think it happens generally throughout history. So, uh, but it was very acute in in 1940 in France because, because as I say, the um, the, the events happened so fast that uh, people were just uh, completely bewildered. And isn't that the same story with uh, decadence as a, um, a variable in the defeat? Um, you're going to go back actually to the Franco-Prussian War and Zola's uh, romans uh, in that time period, of course the most famous one being uh, the Roman Nana, um, where the decadence of her circle is mirrored by, at the end of the Roman, by the decadence of the France, which is about to be defeated by Prussia. Indeed, yes, very, very good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, there's a marvelous... Um, there's a marvelous uh, passage from uh, Julian Jackson's book on the uh, on the fall of France, um, which I've mentioned already, and which I do really recommend to to to, to your readers, um, where he he summarizes this particular point. And let me read it to you. It's very very short, but it it makes the point I think terribly well. He he says that. At the time, in 1940, the time of the defeat, um, some people, as I'd said before, were sure that God had punished France. But there was no end of other uh, reasons that people put forward uh, for uh, the defeat, including, depending on ideological preference, people blamed politicians or generals, communist agitators, or fascist fifth columnists, school teachers or industrialists, the middle classes or the working classes. They blamed individualism, materialism, feminism, alcoholism, denatalité, dechristianization, the breakup of the family, the decline of patriotism, treason, Malthusianism and immoral literature. So everybody had an explanation, or the, well, sorry, not everybody had an explanation, but those who had an explanation uh, would point to somebody else as being responsible. In light of the consensus on contingency as the explanatory uh, variable for the French defeat, where does that leave scholarly opinion on figures like Gamelin, Daladier, Renaud, of the last years of the Third Republic? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think I think the answer is that at the time, of course, um, they were severely criticized uh, both by Vichy um, but also even by people who were anti-Vichy um, and who were in favor of uh, the war continuing with, uh, with Britain and who had, for example, escaped from France in 1940. And I'm thinking in particular of a very famous 
French journalist uh, who settled in the United States in uh, the summer of 1940 uh, and remained there throughout the war. His name was André Giraud, and he wrote under a pen name of Pertinax. And he wrote a famous book which was published in, in New York in, by La Maison Française, uh, in about 1941 or two, I can't remember exactly. And it was called The Gravediggers of France. And, and among the gravediggers were the three that you've mentioned, um, uh, Daladier, Renault and, uh, Gamelin. And his portrait, essentially, uh, of the gravediggers is a series of personal uh, portraits of the characters themselves and their failings as individuals. And at the same time, he makes criticisms of the Third Republic as a political um, system. Um, and although he didn't subscribe particularly to the decadence theory, he nevertheless felt that uh, by implication, the, the fall of France was due to the failings, the, the gross failings of these uh, leaders uh, that he portrayed in his book. Since then, of course, particularly over the last 40 years, there has been some rehabilitation of, um, of these personalities by historians, but not completely by any means, but not completely at all. What I think the what I think historians have done and people like Julian Jackson and others have done is to explain um, the constraints which the three of them, to take those three examples, uh, were forced to work uh, under. And there's no doubt that they had individual failings. Um, uh, Gamelin was complacent, um, didn't necessarily think of alternative, possible alternative scenarios like the Germans crossing the Meuse through the Ardennes forest. Daladier certainly took on more work uh, and ministerial portfolios than he was perhaps capable of, and he was not as uh, brave and as forthright as uh, he, he liked to portray. And Reno certainly was uh, a, a maverick in French politics in the interwar period. I mean, he was a very intelligent man and he, he deserved a lot of respect and he was a, a courageous man in some respects. But he also uh, had a lot, he exercised a lot of misjudgments in appointing some of the people around him um, who actually, most of whom turned out to be defeatists. And we'll never know for sure, but he, in effect, threw in the towel on the, Ju on the 16th of June 1940, whereas if he had been a little bit stronger, he might have, um, he might have overcome the opposition of Végan, who was the commander-in-chief asking for an armistice, and Pétain, who kept on threatening to resign if, if, if France didn't ask for a, an armistice. But failure, failures, though they were in many respects, don't forget 
the problems that France f uh, faced in the 1930s. And this is the book. This is the point that I try to make in my book that modern historians have 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 reminded us that there were many problems that France faced in the 1920s and 1930s, um, including the fact that Germany was a much larger country, was industrially more advanced. It had a, a, a bigger population. Once Hitler was in power, it was inevitable that that Hitler would be become aggressive because of of his program um, of expansion um, and uh, and Lebensraum, as it was called. Uh, France mishandled the economy to some extent in the late 20s and 1930s, and had a more deflationary economic policy in the mid 30s, which meant that it then emerged out of the recession later than other countries, including the United States and Britain and so on. And that meant that the rearmament program um, started late. Um, there were structural problems in the aircraft industry, for example, in France, which meant that they were very, very French were very late in developing and, and producing large scale um, uh, military aircraft and so on and so forth. And also, France's alliance system um, broke down, in effect. Um, you may remember that in the 1920s and 30s, France had tried to construct a, a network of alliances with countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, but those were very unstable countries, and they wouldn't have been able to help France very much, even if those alliances had remained in place. The British and the French failed to uh, seal an alliance with the Soviet Union for all sorts of uh, political, cultural and other reasons. And of course, the British were afraid of a continental commitment after the First World War. And it wasn't really until uh, very, very late in the day um, that um, Britain formally committed to France's defence. It was in fact not until February 1939. And so... Uh, France was on its own to some extent, um, partly as a result of its fault and its poor diplomacy, but also because of the reluctance of other countries as well. So there were constraints. And the question for historians is that in the case of those three that you've mentioned is, you know, how far were they bound to fail because of the constraints that France faced or how much of it was truly their own fault as individuals? Has uh, Paul Renaud managed to live down, at least among historians, uh, Madame de Porte? No, I think not. No, no. <laughs> no, it's an intriguing story, isn't it? Yes, it's a really intriguing story. And um, no, I think not. No, she was a defeatist, as were others in his entourage. And um, she, he allowed, herself, uh, he allowed himself to be influenced too much by her. There's no question about it. Uh, and that may well have contributed to his uh, standing down uh, in June 1940. And um, and of course, I don't know if your listeners know this, but uh, Madame de Porte, who was his mistress, um, after the uh, um, after the armistice was signed um, or round about the time of the armistice, uh, 
he, Paul Renault and, and Hélène de Porte uh, were on a road journey, I think, on their way to Vichy. Um, and, of course, they had a road accident and she died. And um, that's the last we hear of Hélène de Porte. And I, I've never really understood and I've never managed to find anywhere how, it, how Renault reacted to that. Um, there doesn't seem to be much material. I may be wrong, and if one of your listeners can uh, enlighten us, I'd love I'd love to know more about that. How would you compare the popular memory of uh, 1940 in France, particularly among people born after 1945, as opposed to say that of the UK? Yes, it's a very good question. It's a very good question because. And this is one of the points that I make in my book. It's a point that I've picked up from other historians, so it's not an original point. And that is that, in fact, 1940 and the defeat in particular is a little bit shrouded in, in not mystery, but I would say in deliberate ignorance, although that is changing, and I'll come back to that point in a moment. But for a long, long time... Um, People wanted to forget about 1940. Of course, those who had lived through 1940 couldn't forget, although they would try and forget subsequently or put it out of their mind, shall we say. But people who were born after 1940, uh, they probably wouldn't have known very much about it because it wasn't discussed. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Um, and one of the reasons, of course, is the... Um, it is what's known as the Vichy syndrome, which was the phrase that was uh, created by the French historian Henri Rousseau, who in effect describes in a book which he called the Vichy syndrome, which is also available in English, um, how Vichy was re remembered from 1944 onwards uh, throughout the period of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and so on. And how initially it was the memory of Vichy was repressed and then it came back to the surface and how um, Vichy was then uh, studied in great detail and, 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 and discussed in great detail. And what he says is, in effect, that, um, that the, the memory of Vichy was so all-encompassing, so dominant, that it, in effect, blocked out uh, the defeat of 1940. But there are other arguments like the French historian Robert Franck, uh, who says, no, there is a syndrome of 1940. Uh, and in the syndrome is one of hum a sense of humiliation and shame that France was defo defeated in 1940. Uh, and that was the reason why it was repressed um, for, for, for a long, long time. And, of course, added to that is the fact that... Um, the French state in the period after the Second World War uh, didn't really memorialize it officially um, the fallen of May, June 1940. And if you travel around France today and you go into little villages, in nearly every village and town that you, will, you go to, you will find there's a war memorial uh, to the men who died in 1914-1918, but not so many or very few monuments to the people who died in 1940. 
That's not universally the case, but but it, the difference is noticeable. Uh, of course, far fewer people died, as we were discussing earlier, in 1940 than in 1914, 1918. Uh, don't forget, I think the figure for France in the First World War was about 1.3 million deaths. So that's uh, that's that's a completely different uh, situation to 1940. So um, so as I say, there were many reasons why people wanted to forget about 1940. Uh, but I think that is changing now. Uh, I think more and more works of history, both popular and, and academic, about the defeat of 1940 are available now. And so more and more people will uh, know about it. Um, but if you look at the books that are produced, for example, and this is a point that I make in, in my book, uh, books that are produced for university students in France, for example, the uh, the explanations of the defeat of 1940 are sometimes a little bit vague. Um, in other words, it's still, for some people, difficult to understand why the defeat actually occurred. Uh, if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor Carswell, what would it be? Um, two things. Um, France uh, in 1940, in some respects, was unlucky. Um, and therefore, it's worth delving into the story and trying to understand um, how that came about. And the second thing, of course, is that uh, history as a as a a narrative, as a means of telling stories of the past, is always evolving. Um, and there is never the final word uh, on a particular subject. Upon that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Carswell, for being so kind and speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Carswell. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>